Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Warning, this podcast contains spoilers for the limited series Moon Knight on Disney+. Plus. A bunch of stuff from Moon Knight Comics, also West Coast Avengers, some Spider-Man No Way Home, and uh, Marvel movies in general. My name is Jason Concepcion, and welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. In today's episode, previously on, we recap Moon Knight episode one, The Goldfish Problem. In the airlock, we dive into our thoughts on the episode, uh, some comics history about the character. Rosie will unpack who some of these uh, folks are that we are seeing in the Moon Knight television program. And we will discuss theories about what we think is going on uh, for Nerd Out on Marlon James's novel, Black Leopard, Red Wolf. It's really great, actually. That's a great book. I love that book. I love it. And in the end game, we discuss... Which mythical god's powers we would like to bogart for ourselves? Joining me today to discuss this and more is the great, the powerful, the talented, Rosie Moon Knight. It's me! Oh, that, that, <laughs> when I had Twitter, that was my name at least once a year. <laughs> at least once a year. Uh, Rosie, how are you? Yeah, good. I'm excited to be here to talk to you about all this cool stuff and dig into some really weird comics history. Really is weird like stuff. Fave. Oh man, I've been reading a bunch of Moon Knight. We'll talk about it. We'll <laughs> talk about it when we talk about it. Let's get into the recap. Okay, recapping Moon Knight Episode 1, The Goldfish Problem, written by Jeremy Slater, directed by Mohamed Diab. We hear the strains of the Bob Dylan song, uh, Every Grain of Sand. And along with this, we see uh, hands breaking glass, pouring the shards of glass into a pair of rattan slippers. This person who's breaking the glass then shoves his feet down in the slippers like an absolute psycho. We know we're dealing right away with a psycho, Rosie. This person then stands up to the crunching of glass and then uh, takes a takes a walk. And then as the camera pulls out, we see that we're inside some kind of large, uh, what we would assume is a temple of mm-hmm. some kind. And we can tell from the shot that that is Ethan Hawke, who is playing Arthur Harrow, the villain of our series. Smash cut, Stephen Grant wakes up in bed. He removes the shackle from his own ankle, which is tied to a load-bearing pillar in his apartment. He then uh, goes around his apartment, and we see that he's Uh, placed sand around his bed so that he knows if he stood up in the night and left. He has placed uh, blue painter's tape on his door so that he can tell if someone's come in or if he has left. Uh, And all of that stuff seems undisturbed. Groggy from lack of sleep. Clearly, this is a person who's not getting a restful night of sleep. He's got, uh, we, we would assume from this, like the Mike Birbiglia a sleep issue where uh, he just uh, will run around in the middle of the night. Groggy from lack of sleep, Stephen goes to his job, which we see is the uh, in the gift shop at the British Museum. Are they calling it the British Museum okay, in this, so, Rosie? So this is very specific London Easter eggs here. The exterior that they use is of the National Gallery, which is in Trout okay. Square, where we see him leaves. Now the interior is the British Museum, which has very recognizable gift shops. And I think that at some point in the show, they name it as something like the National Art Gallery. But it is not wrong to say it's in the British Museum. And I will say it's very interesting because we also saw them use the British Museum as a location in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness' most That's recent right. trailer. So yeah, he's go- He's a gift shop. He's a gift shopist at the museum is what he often he's a, says. He's a gift shopist, but Stephen Stevie to his colleagues would is is... 
a bit of an amateur historian, specifically Egyptology. Uh, we we learn from his conversations with a young museum goer that uh, man Stevie really knows his shit. He knows what's going on. Uh, specifically about the history of ancient Egypt. He would love to be a tour guide, but here he is stuck in uh, marketing and promotions, which uh, we can just shorten to gift shop. One of his coworkers comes over as he's working at the gift shop to confirm that they do indeed have a date at one of the best steakhouses in town. And it's very clear that uh, Stevie, a.k.a. Stephen, doesn't know what she's talking about and doesn't recall asking her out, isn't sure who asked who out. That night after work, uh, Stephen goes to get some street food. He's hanging out uh, in the park, talking the ear off a street performer, one of those street performers who like spray paints themselves a metallic color and then pretends to be a statue. Who do we now we're stepping on uh, our later. Who are these characters, Rosie? But like you had a good theory on who this might be. And I think I agree with you. So in the comics from quite early on in the 80s, Moon Knight has a kind of an ally who is like a homeless man who is a, sometimes he's kind of the Watson to Jake Lockley, one of Mark Spector's personalities, uh, kind of sidekick. And sometimes he's more of just like an informant who hears things from the street because the original representation of Moon Knight's different personas were to help him navigate through different class levels and spaces Mm -hmm. in the world. That character is called Crawley. He does not have a history of being a a kind of living statue as we see here, but he does look a lot like the character in the comics. And there is a credit for the actor who plays him at the end of the show, which says Crawley. So we can say that is him. Confirmed. Confirmed. That is Crawley. And hopefully, I think that means that even if we don't get to see it here, I think Stephen is going to have an ally. And that makes me excited. When Steven goes back home, we get to see more of his sleep routine, pouring the sand around the bed, taping the door shut, chaining him, chaining his leg up. He lays in bed, uh, throwing a Rubik's Cube up in up in the air and catching it, trying to sleep, reading books, listening to uh, like a sleep tape that says, hey, you can try imagining yourself as the character in a story, or you could try this, or you could try that. None of it works. Said he stays up reading about ancient Egypt and then finally peaceful sleep comes over Stephen and he dozes. And when he awakes, he's in the Alps or somewhere in the mountains. He he says he's in the Alps and we'll get to why that's a thing later. And this is is the first horror. This is the first horror moment as well. Yes. So he's in the Alps. His jaw is broken, but we watch it fix itself. It is daytime. Stephen doesn't remember anything about anything, how he came to be here. Nothing. A voice that we will, uh, I think, uh, soon come to learn is Conchu tells him, go back to sleep, worm. You're not supposed to be here. Surrender the body to Mark. And clearly that is a reference to Mark Spector. Stephen, uh, you know, going through his pockets, trying to figure out what the hell's going on, finds a golden scarab in his pocket. He looks up and two men in a castle seem to take an interest in him. And then all of a sudden they start shooting him. They chase him down the mountain and into town. And everyone in town uh, in this small alpine village seems to be headed somewhere towards the village square. And when they get to the village square, they are all bowing in obeisance to our villain, Arthur Harrow. Arthur says a bunch of stuff, including we are here to make the earth as much like heaven as possible. Uh, we, we can see from what's going on that Arthur is somehow judging these people to see if they're worthy of entering into this earth like heaven. A man steps forward. Harrow leads him through the ritual and he judges that person in Amit's name. Here's our first reference to Amit, this, uh-huh. this deity Amit, that this person, this man that steps forward is 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 a good man, has been judged uh, a good man by Ahmed. A woman steps forward and next, and the scales of justice, which are a tattoo on Arthur Harrow's arm, turned red, and the woman is clearly not a good person, and Harrow says, Ahmed has decided, uh, you gotta die, my dear, and she drops dead. Bye-bye. Harrow uh, learns from the guards that are uh, watching this take place that uh, something went wrong with the, quote, handoff. And then Harrow has his followers kneel, leaving Stephen the only one standing. And he's standing there slack-jawed at what he's seeing. <laughs> Harrow is like, oh, I recognize you. You're the mercenary. Um, and recall in some of our previous conversations about this character that um, one of the egos of Moon Knight is Mark Spector, this mercenary character. He's a, kind of the original 
personality of Moon Knight. Grant has no idea what the fuck Arthur Harrow is talking about. He tells everyone, listen, I work in the gift shop at the British Museum. Like, what? Harrow's uh, like, give me the scarab. And Stephen's like, yeah, you got it. Here here we go. And he tries to hand it over, but he hears Khonshu's voice say, you will give him nothing. And then Stephen tries. He might physically cannot hand the scarab over. He doesn't understand why he can't do it. A man comes up and snatches the scarab from Stephen. Grant comes to a moment later, his fists balled up, covered in blood, and people all around him are just knocked the fuck out. And he hears Khonshu's voice say, oh, the idiot's back. And Stephen runs for it, pursued by Harrow's followers. A car chase ensues through the mountains with Khonshu screaming at Stephen to do this and that. Just when Stephen is about to get taken out because one of these uh, followers of Arthur Harrow is, has uh, jumped onto the truck, the van that he is driving, he passes out again. And when he wakes up, more stuff has changed. Uh, and this happens again and again and again. And eventually a landslide takes out a squad of the baddies and Stephen wakes up in bed. Still chained by the leg, his tape intact over the door. Was this just a dream? What in the world is happening? Uh, Stephen looks at his goldfish and he sees that the fin that had fallen off, been injured somehow, has grown back. What is going on? Realizing he is late for that uh, date with Dylan, Stephen rushes to his flat to change. At the restaurant, he has been stood up by the date. He calls her. She's irate, of course, saying that actually you stood me up. And he has no idea like what date is, what the fuck is going on. His date is ruined. The date that he didn't even plan. He didn't even know who asked who out. He goes home to eat a box of chocolates alone. While he's home, he finds a secret compartment in his living room up in the ceiling above the wainscoting, high on the wall, rather, he finds another secret compartment. And inside that is a, a burner flip phone and an ID card. All the calls on the phone go to a number that is listed as Layla. Phone rings. A not British voice says, oh, my God, thank God you're alive. And she's like, I haven't. Where have you been? I haven't heard from you in months. What's going on? And he's like, who's this? And she's like, why are you <laughs> talking like that? In a bad British accent, and she calls him Mark, and then the call disconnects. Stephen then hears a voice, which is his own voice, talking to him, and it tells him that he needs to, to stop because he's going to get himself into trouble. Stephen then, very, very troubled, runs out of his apartment. He goes into the elevator. While he's on the elevator, he he sees Khonshu coming towards him, and he's like in a puddle of fear at the bottom of the elevator. He's screaming. Uh, but then it turns out that uh, actually it's an old woman who is on the elevator. She's just as scared as he is. And the very next thing uh, Stephen knows is he's on a city bus screaming just a little bit. As the bus pulls away, Stephen sees that Arthur Harrow was on the bus, and Harrow appears to Stephen later, demanding the beetle. This is at the museum. Only Stephen can see and hear Harrow, if indeed Harrow is even real. Harrow wants the beetle returned to Amit. Grant knows a little about her. Harrow tells Stephen that Amit could have solved all the world's problems if she had not been betrayed. Harrow and, and knows about the voice that is speaking to Stephen, the Conchu voice. And Harrow judges Stephen and says, there's chaos in you. And Stephen runs for it. Later in the gift shop, Stephen is tagging items. The lights go out. He hears like this beastly kind of sound. Uh, somewhere in the museum whining. Shadows in the museum start growing to monstrous sizes. Harold comes over to the PA. He's like, give me the scarab or Stephen will be torn apart. Stephen runs from the monstrous uh, creature. Mark Spector, Stephen's alter ego, demands control of the body. And then we flash to, as Stephen is running, we flash to, all of a sudden, Stephen is in full Moon Knight costume, but now we know it's Mark. And Mark has just fought the beast and won. Uh, that is how the first episode of Moon Knight ends. When we come back, we will be discussing what the hell all this means. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.
We're stepping out of the airlock to dive deeper into the world of Moon Knight. Rosie, what did you think of this episode? I feel like this was always going to be a complex... It's going to be tough to start. It was going to be tough to start. And there are some things about the show and kind of the representation of Steven that I didn't love. I I felt like his struggles were kind of played for laughs and I felt like people Mm -hmm. were a little bit mean to him. And I'm just a sweet guy who likes nice stuff. So I was like, (laughs) but the thing that gives me hope is it's doing the thing that all my favorite MCU shows do, which is it's really deeply taking from some incredibly weird comics and some old comics. So it's very much in the vein of Hawkeye and one division in deeply taking stuff and, and and plucking out characters and reimagining them. And I I will always respect any superhero show that only shows like five seconds of a superhero suit. Yeah. I think that is very brave. What did you think about it? Here's the thing about Moon Knight. We've said this before on, mm-hmm. on the podcast. Moon Knight is a character that I think you could argue is about vibes, purely about vibes. There's never, and your mileage may vary. If someone feels differently and has a different opinion, that's absolutely valid. But having read all of the Moon Knights, uh, there's not really like a hammer Moon Knight story. There's not like the iconic Moon Knight tale, the great Moon Knight story. The character has been significantly changed almost every time Mm -hmm. he's appeared you know, from his uh, first appearance appearance in his solo in in uh, Werewolf by Night to his solo titles to his then revamped solo titles West Coast Avengers and his uh, several other launch solo titles after his appearances in West Coast Avengers he's he's changed almost every time and there's never really been that great 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 arc I think mainly because he also doesn't have like his early villains were very problematic Mm -hmm. and he doesn't really have that great foil to fight. So it was interesting, at least for me to, to, to reflect on how Moon Knight episode one was very much how I would imagine an adaptation of Moon Knight taking place. It was pretty messy. It was all about vibes. There was something Mm -hmm. really intriguing about it. And I'm interested to see where it goes. I think that, I think that there's a chance for this to be really, really interesting in the way that it intersects with the kind of ongoing and existing MCU, which yes. we are going to talk about shortly. Um, but first, let's let's talk about who some of these people we're seeing here are. Yeah. Um, some of these characters. I actually think your villain, you're kind of talking about like the foil and everything. That's a really good place to launch off because what Moon Knight does here is it essentially creates wholesale a new villain yes. for Moon Knight. Now, Arthur Harrow was in one issue ever. One issue. He was yeah. in one issue ever. But what this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. The show opens, right? And immediately it is just filled with Arthur Harrow Easter eggs. So when we first meet Arthur Harrow in the show, he is playing with the idea of pain. He's filling his shoes yeah. with with a broken glass, you know, and in the original comic where he debuted, he was a scientist who was continuing Nazi experiments based on the idea of pain theory. And he was in the Yucatan in this Mayan temple. It's a very problematic issue, like a lot of that older stuff, the representation of of different kinds of people. But the temple, once again, you get that immediate deep cut. So it's not that Arthur Harrow didn't exist, but what they're doing is they're taking this name and this one appearance and expanding it into something larger. And I think that's really interesting. And obviously, like, it's Ethan Hawke. Who doesn't want to see him get to kind of redefine this space? And something else that I think is really interesting about this is it is the most prominent time that we've seen Marvel do something that they've started to do, especially Hawkeye. We talked about it a lot. They take these names of, of famous Marvel characters and they recontextualize who they are as usually background characters. And that happened with Hawkeye's uh, cosplaying crew, his LARPing crew, right? This, we see them take a minor character who appeared in one issue and recontextualize it as a main villain. And that's something we're going to see in Multiverse of Madness as well with Gargantos, who was only in a couple of issues. So I think that's really interesting. And I really, I'm always interested in uh, a story that explores like the mentality of cults and how they play on the vulnerable mm. and how they take advice. And, and that definitely seems like what Ethan, Ethan's Arthur Harrow seems to be playing into that with Mark and kind of 
trying to take advantage of Stephen feeling vulnerable and lost. So I think that is an interesting take. And we touched on Crawley, who's Crawley. played by Sean Scott. So we think that's he's probably going to become an ally to Stephen. I would imagine when we get into the back half of exactly. the series, we will see more of uh, Crawley. Yeah. And so then we get into some really interesting stuff that kind of jumps off the the Moon Knight Hawkeye crossover kind of stuff. So Stephen's mean boss in the museum who makes him do inventory is credited <laughs> as Donna, played by Lucy Thackeray. And she's like a very funny, like English, like sassy character, right? Yeah. Now in the comics, this is another likely nod to a Moon Knight character from the Mark Spector Moon Knight series, which was the 90s Moon Knight series. And she was introduced in issue 39, a woman called Donna Craft, who's basically Mark Spector's head publicist at his huge corporation that he owns called Spector Corp. So they kind of rejig that here where she's just his boss at the museum. But as we'll talk about later with theories, I also think there's some argument of like, is the museum what we're really seeing? Or is it yes. a version of Spectre Corp that Mark might have perhaps created to keep an eye on Stephen when he's away? Yeah. Um, and also in another, we'll talk about this too, but like her first appearance is in an issue with where Dr. Doom challenges to go to the Latverian consulate and in this kind of quest for a stolen relic. And that will become relevant. We will talk about that more in a moment. Yeah. I think that one of the biggest questions people are going to have coming out of this is um, at the end, you mentioned, you know, we hear him on the phone to this person who doesn't sound English, who is called Layla. And in the credits, we see that she's called Layla Alfaoli. And there is not a Marvel character mm -hmm. who has that direct name. But the first most obvious one that I think if people have read Moon Knight comics, they will probably realize that she seems to be, likely will become a stand-in for Marlene, who mm -hmm. is Moon Knight's on-again, off-again kind of lover, partner in crime, fellow adventurer, and some promo shots have kind of hinted at that. But there's some other things as well. There's a Marvel character called Lila, who was in the Moon Knight comics, who was more of kind of like a mob boss. So that seems a little bit less likely, but worth mentioning because they like yeah. to roll stuff in. Yeah. I think, okay, so we'll do the most outlandish one before I do the most realistic one. Yeah, let's do, do the most, yeah. do the outlandish So one. the most outlandish one is a lot of people were like, well, the only famous Marvel Layla is Layla Miller. Which would be yeah. totally wild Bonkers. and crazy it would, yeah uh layla miller is a mutant uh known as butterfly uh in from house of m and it's been an x factor and, yeah. and she and, she when house of m went down she uh she had kept her uh she kept her uh powers and also was able to kind of like uh she was a creation of house of m that survived post yeah. the dissolution of house of m and so like you know that's a character who has connections to dr doom but yeah. like the reality is in this kind of grounded dark show where the thing that really seems to be relating and like speaking to people about this first episode is the kind of slightly more real take and a bit more of that yeah. Batman element. I don't necessarily know if this is where they're going to introduce, you know, just casually like introduce a mutant. So I think the most realistic thing that would fit into the trend that Marvel has been doing of late which is where they recontextualize a character who in the past was like at best kind of a stereotype. Mm -hmm. And there is a character called the Scarlet Scarab who there's been two people who've held the mantle, Abdul Fahul, not Fahuli, but it's similar. And then his son Mehmet. And that has been a character who was like briefly a villain and then briefly kind of heroic and was an adventurer and has a lot of ties to Egypt. So I think if they're going to go anywhere with that character, they're probably going to do a recontextualization of the Scarlet Scarab where Layla is this powerful adventurer who wants to kind of reclaim the things that have been stolen through colonialism and all that kind of stuff, which is really cool right. yeah, and is, is also what people, do you remember when everyone wanted to like cast Oscar Isaac as Indiana Jones and they were like, yeah. just do it where he's Indiana Jones, but he's stealing the stuff back. Yeah, And I was like, that sounds good. So I think they're going to play a little bit with that. And that's been a, you know, uh, when Killmonger first appears in Black Panther, mm -hmm. that's the that's the kind of vibe that he uh, put forth is like this is this is a lot of these artifacts and these objects have been stolen. 
And it is interesting also to note that we've just been spending a lot of time in museums. So whether it's Black Panther or The Eternals or Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, we're going to do it. And clearly we're doing it here. Rosie, let's talk about theories, our theories about what Ooh. is possibly going on. So I had texted you uh, as I was watching this. And yeah. well, first of all, we should say that in recent iterations of the character, Mark Spector, the Moon Knight, has been depicted as someone who uh, is suffering from a form of disassociative um, personality disorder, DID, yeah. um, formerly called multiple personality disorder. This kind of evolved over time. Originally, uh, as you noted, Moon Knight had a number of aliases that he used to kind of like break down class structure and allow yeah. him to understand like what was going on in the criminal underworld, right? He had a, he had a cab driver character. He had the, the, billionaire. His, millionaire, his millionaire slash billionaire rich guy character. Yeah. And then he had like some other ones. So originally they said it was like psychic trauma from connecting right. with Konshu split his personalities. In the 90s, they would kind of occasionally refer to it as schizophrenia. Right. And then the first time that it was really like DID as disassociative identity sort of was like in the mid zeros when Bendis yeah. brought him into the ultimate universe. And from there, it just kept evolving and went from kind of a narrative device to some people actually like explored it as part of who he was. And, and that has been like a core tenant of the character under many different names. Yes. Now, I think we both agree that I would not be surprised if they don't now, they brought in a DID consultant, and they uh, uh, talked about that in some pre-show interviews. I think that that is probably – I might be, could easily be wrong, but I think that's probably a just a bid to be responsible about the depiction. And I think really what's going on here, and I'm judging by the fact that Moon Knight's costume just appears like out of mm -hmm. nowhere, right? I think what we're seeing here is some sort of multiversal convergence, some sort of action like that. We had talked previously in um, in our Loki episodes about these uh, this idea of nexus beings, these beings mm -hmm. who like act as convergence points throughout the multiverse. They're the same throughout the multiverse. And I think maybe there's something like that going on here. Notably, the Scarlet Witch is one of these very important nexus beings. But I think maybe there's something like that going on here where you have – different versions of the person who is Mark Spector or Stephen Grant. Mm -hmm. And those different multiversal versions are converging on the same body and sharing the same body. And that is why we get like this costume, like appearing out of nowhere and stuff like that. I think that's probably what we're seeing. I think that you're right. And I actually, so I love to, I would, this is something I always recommend to everyone who watches these shows. If you wait till the end of the movie or the end of the show, aside from probably getting some kind of stinger sometimes, you can yeah. see the special thanks. And that's where we get to kind of pay our respects to the creators who enabled these stories to be told. And the special thanks in these Marvel shows have been very telling. In the first episode of WandaVision, they thanked Olivier Coipel and Brian Michael Bendis. And that was how we worked out the House of M was probably going to be a really big influence. Yep. So there are secrets built in there. And... At the end of the first episode of Moon Knight, they thank Jim Kruger, Alex Ross, Doug Braithwaite, all three of whom worked on a book called Universe X, which featured a different universe version of Mark Spector, who got his powers uh -huh. through vibranium. They also did design the mummy-style suit, so there's other reasons, but it's very interesting that they famously designed this different Mark Spector from a different Earth. Then you also have Bill Sinkovich, famous Moon Knight creator, absolute comic book artist icon, but in one of his what if issues, he played with the idea that Mark Spector was from a different universe and he had three different altars. And then we also have Jeff Lemire, who has obviously was the author of one of the most popular current kind yes. of takes on Moon Knight and his mental health. But also has he has actually created multiple multiversal Moon Knights just alone, just him. I think it's important that they brought in consultants and were thoughtful about the representation. I think so too. I, right. I didn't pers it didn't speak to me as someone who is always thinking about that kind of stuff. I I didn't feel like it was what I hoped it would be, but I have seen a lot of people who it really spoke to and they really related to it. And I think that that's really important and cool. So I think it's really good they did that. And you can't really do Moon Knight without doing that because of the history of the character. But I do feel like 
from this first episode and the fact that the DID is not actually mentioned in the context of the show of the first episode, and there's only six episodes, yeah, they don't have a Doom Patrol level of three seasons or Legion right. amount of episodes to really explore what DID means, what, how it happens, uh, the trauma that causes it. So I think that a multiversal idea of Mark essentially or Steven struggling with multiple versions of himself from multiple different universes is actually very likely. And also it would tie into Kang. It would tie into the multiversal kind of mayhem that Marvel is really leaning into at the moment. And it would make a lot of sense because these iterations, these versions of Mark and Steven are very different. And the struggle... If this had been going on his whole life, you feel like maybe there would be some empathy from people who knew him or he would have been able to access some kind of help. But it feels, he doesn't seem to have the words to describe it. He talks a lot about needing help. It feels recent. And I think that would be a really smart way of looking at the struggle of all these different people. And also like we know now that from What If, that, that what happened in Loki, the different timelines, that did affect the main MCU. So there's a chance that these Mark Spectres from different universes have either been pruned and so need somewhere else to exist or now Mm. exist because of split timelines. Right. I think that this is, if I had to bet, I would say that this is not the quote unquote 616 MCU time. This is taking Mm -hmm. place, what we're mostly seeing is taking place in some kind of offshoot pocket universe yeah um that will then elements of which will then be brought into the main mcu now i'm glad that you mentioned kang our multiversal big bad introduced (laughs) in the loki series is going to play uh such a large role in phase four how we don't know because we mentioned the alpine location yes now very very clearly marvel is like Playing with the idea that that could be Latveria. Yes. The, the kingdom, the nation kingdom ruled by Dr. Doom, Victor Von Doom. They're, they're they want really to teasing that. us with that. That's what, yeah, they're teasing us with that. If you've ever read a comic that has Latveria in it, and I wrote an article about this at Nerdist that you can go and read that has visual imagery. If you've ever read a comic about Latveria, and you've seen an image of it, it is a Bavarian alpine town that in the mountains has a huge castle, you know, carved out of it. That is called Castle Doom. That little city is called Doomstadt, and it is in Latveria, where Dr. Doom was born, then left, then went back to reclaim his kind of like kingship or presidency or whichever version. And that, whether, look, we are not out here saying like, this is confirmed. But whoever made this show... There's a world where this is like a pre-Doctor yeah, Doom Latveria exactly. alternate d- dimension, but they're clearly playing with it. But they want you to think it. that. They want you to think that. There was even that moment in the trailer where like loads of people reported on it, then loads of people reported that it wasn't true. And I was, yeah. it's just a funny... There's the, the cupcake truck that he steals during the mountain car chase, it's, it's for a company called like Von Drumberg Von, or something. Yeah, yeah. But people saw the... Von, Von D and they were like oh my gosh and then it was really funny because everyone was like it was not that but now you watch the episode and you're like oh but they want you to they have this conversation say- they want you to 100%. say is it and also like we said you know Moon Knight has he's tangled with Doctor Doom there's that right. two issue uh, arc 39 and 40 in Mark Spector Moon Knight in the 90s where he kind of has this entanglement with Doctor Doom and, and they play on a little bit of both of their sides kind of both sides of their kind of like anti-heroism, like could they be a hero, could they be a villain? And I think that's really interesting. Also in that issue, Doom is kind of approaching Mark about a relic that he stole, a Latverian Uh relic. And in this, we see Mark there with the scarab, a relic that he's stolen, a relic that is also in another good comic book nod, is like directly from the comics. Mark is after... he loses the power of Konshu. He meets the priests of Konshu, and they end up giving him these relics, including a scarab that give him his power. Kang, as we talked about in our Loki episodes, and it's important to reiterate, is a time traveler who, through his extensive time traveling, has just accrued extreme uh, like amounts of knowledge and expertise about the way the universe works, the fabric of the universe, and just understands how to how to 
kind of play reality like an orchestra. Now, a different version, a variant of Kang in the Marvel Comics canon is Doctor Doom. Doctor Doom is a mm-hmm. version of Kang in in one universe. Also a version of Kang, Reed Richards. I'm just going to put this out here right now as a thing that could happen. Jonathan Majors, Kang, playing both Doctor Doom and Reed Richards. I it's would on the love table. to see it. It I could happen. Absolutely. I think that by... I think that one Jonathan Majors iconic Kang casting just can't get right. enough of that final Loki episode. That would be incredible. And I think that they made a statement as soon as you oh. cast Jonathan Majors as Kang, you you introduce the probability and the likelihood that Reed will be black. And that's yeah. a world I want to live in. And I think having yeah. all three of those characters as black characters in the MCU would be super interesting. And if they were brave enough to do all three played by Jonathan. I would crazy. love it. It would be insane. It would and be so good. It would kind of, there's lots of easy ways to tie it in. When Dr. Doom first appeared, he appeared as a time travel villain who was constantly like traveling around and causing chaos. And then in, you know, to bring the Moon Knight context back to it, Kang has a ancient Egyptian yes, period for, where he's Ramatat, yes. you know? So, right. So f- just to, just to quickly reset on this so kang kang lived in the three in like the uh the 30th century and he was just like really bored with life in the 30th century because it was too peaceful and he discovers a a time machine he starts traveling around the very first place he ends up going is ancient egypt where he then becomes the ruler he names himself ramatat and he rules for a large amount of time he hides like a time machine in the fucking great pyramid and he d- gets up to all kinds of trouble he tussles with the fantastic four yeah and he messes around with uh, the west coast avengers after they get hurled throughout time into like six different timelines some of the west coast avengers end up hanging out in ancient egypt where they uh, have this adventure against ramatut now here's and another interesting tie-in. So Kang is Ramatut, remember that, variant of Ramatut. While Hawkeye is trapped in 2149 BC, he happens into the Temple of Khonshu, not understanding what the what the importance is. And he's just like, oh, uh, he ends up through different turns of events uh, because he kind of takes a liking to the defenders of the Temple of Khonshu. He like carves these little you know, uh, the Moon Knight moon batarangs, moonerangs, and different kind of like projectile weapons for uh, the people of Kanshu. In other words, Hawkeye in 2149 BC designed Moon Knight's <laughs> Yes, scarab darts. That's He made wild. his weapons, which is another crazy little thing to it. So all of which is to say, I wonder, I wonder if... At the end of this, we get some sort of Ramatet, Kang, Doctor Doom hint, some kind of drop about that that brings us into the stuff that we know we're going towards. Because otherwise, you know, what is this series building towards? Mm-hmm. That's the thing I keep thinking. Mm-hmm. What is what is it here to do? Clearly, multiverse is the order of the day. Does that get us to Kang? I think that there's a chance. I do too. And and I think that it's like important. You guys have heard us talk about Kang a lot, but like it Kang is a because he's from the future, he is a descendant of Reed Richards' father. Yes. Um, and that's kind of why those three are all all seem so connected. I feel like I we talked a lot about Marvel horror. Is this gonna yeah. lead to Marvel horror, the MCU, horror in the MCU? That is definitely the big picture kind of situation. Moon Knight made his debut in Werewolf by Night. Yeah, we're going to have the Werewolf by Night kind of werewolf to be named Halloween special. We know Blade is in the MCU now, also connected to Britain and British museums. And in the comics has a has a London set origin story. And I just never saw it coming that they would do like a Latveria tease. But now they did it. I'm like, this makes so much sense. Like the connection really is there. And these are the kind of things that we love about watching these shows. Even if in like a month, the showrunner's like, it was just the Alps. We can all be like, well, that was fun. You know, that, that was still fun. That I mean, was this, still is, really this is fun. why we get into it. Now, yeah. uh, you mentioned like the crazy version of who Layla could be. I'm going to go with a crazy version of a possible theory here. When I think Egypt 
and, <laughs> and Marvel, I think really kind of like the original mutant and iconic X-Men supervillain mm-hmm. Apocalypse, who it just so happens was uh, played by Oscar Isaacs in X-Men Apocalypse, yep. the very, very bad 2016 X-Men movie. But it's, I don't think we see Apocalypse here, but I wonder if we get a hint. I was watching when they were in, you know, in those temple scenes. Like, I do wonder if at some point they pan past the various statues, if one, we get a Ramatut or an Apocalypse statue in the background of one of these. We know scenes. that the the Fox X-Men movies exist in this universe. Right, at they least, exist. Or at least they will at some yeah. point, because we have seen presumably Charles Xavier played by Patrick Stewart. So there's no reason that I feel like you couldn't allude to it. Maybe Oscar wouldn't want to because I feel like he probably like doesn't remember it fondly. But like, I think that there's Egypt in Marvel is impossible to think of without thinking of Apocalypse yeah. because so much of Marvel is defined by the X-Men. And ironically, even like the Ramatut stuff, the Kang stuff, that's all way, way down the recognition ladder compared to Apocalypse. So when yeah. you have this actor who also, by the way, we're going to see him presumably inhabit many different characters and heroes and villains Mm -hmm. and versions, I don't see why there couldn't be a nod or something that is actually more direct because I think that they've, you know, they've sold the show as kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark meets Indiana Jones meets the MCU. So I think we're going to see a lot more adventuring and actually going to Egypt, going to these spaces. And in that case, Apocalypse is like an outlier, but it's like, who who wouldn't want to see that? Who wouldn't want to... Catch that Easter egg. More connections, possible connections to the larger MCU. Um, The idea of chaos magic. There's chaos Mm -hmm, in Mark. mm -hmm. Um, That gets us to, I mean, it's it's impossible not to think of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and the stuff we might see there. The uh, Shumar Gorath slash Garganta. We're going to, we keep calling him Shumar Gorath. But but Gargantos in the movie, uh, The The Lord Lord of of Chaos. Chaos. Uh, tell us about what do you think? I, do you think that we will get any kind of uh, chaos magic, Lord of Chaos, Gargantos? So in the comics, like breadcrumbs in Mark's this. DID or, or or whatever they've called it has always been inherently supernatural because it was it was always connected in part to Konshu. And recently in the Marvel comics, they actually retcon Konshu to make him an elder god, which would sit him alongside. Right. Uh, Shumagorath and the other elder gods of the Marvel Universe. So that's a connection there. Shumagorath is the Lord of Chaos. In fact, in the first Moon Knight trailer, they actually they actually kind of use Shumagorath's famous video game quote, which is Arthur Harrow says to he says to Steve, you know, he says, Oh, there's chaos in you. And then he says, embrace it. And Shumagorath's phrase is embrace chaos. Recently, the first official kind of MCU big dig into chaos magic was. Uh, that is ha- what Agatha Harkness tells Wanda that she uses. And she says, and that makes you the Scarlet Witch. And the Darkhold, that is a chaos magic book. You know, I think it's very likely the different magics of the MCU kind of come together under that banner. And I think as well, like the chaos in you thing is really interesting because obviously it seems like he's talking about the struggle between Mark and Stephen, but it could be that he's sensing all these different Mm-hmm. people from different planes if Stephen is a nexus or mark is a nexus being because they haven't really made clear who the kind of primary uh version of of the character is in this universe but whoever it is if they're a nexus being that means that they could be contacting and connected to every single multiverse at the same time which is incredibly chaotic and is connected to what wonder can do again back to chaos magic so i think there's definitely yeah. something in that i i think that there is a, a pretty good chance that this is our introduction into the idea of Nexus characters mm-hmm. or the idea of like multiple characters inhabiting the same body. Okay. Uh, more interesting connections, just stuff that I picked up. We mentioned West Coast Avengers. And by the way, yeah. that like time travel adventure arc is, I think West Coast, it starts in like West Coast Avengers 20, I want to say. And the art in that, the, the page you sent me of, killing it. of Hawkeye talking to Konshu is like some of the coolest comic book art I've seen in an age. It's some Al cosmic Milgram. shit. When he really gets fantastical, is just is just wonderful, uh, wonderful, wonderful artist. I can't help but notice that 
first of all, on the Hawkeye series, uh, as we talked about, you know, one of the places that our Hawkeyes, our two Hawkeyes laid up was the apartment of uh, mm-hmm. Moira Brandon, who in the comics is the actress who gives her her Rancho Palos Verdes <laughs> estate yep. uh, uh, to Hawkeye and crew to use as the West Coast Avengers compound. So, okay, we've got her and they very specifically mentioned her name and that can only mean we're, we're at some point going to the West Coast, yeah. whether it's, you know, who wh- who goes unclear, whether it's Kate and Clint, but like we're going to the West Coast. Uh, Moon Knight has some adventures with the West Coast Avengers in the comics. So we have that connection uh, also with that kind of like time traveling adventure. I wonder, we don't have a team yet, right? That's the one thing that in phase four that we don't have. We've had these team up movies with Spider-Man No Way Home. Mm -hmm. It is essentially a team up between multiple Spider-Men, right? And uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiversal Madness will be some kind of team up movie, but similarly it will entail multiple versions of of the same characters, right? Whereas a team-up movie, I do wonder if we're not headed towards like a West Coast Avengers at I know. some point. I, I think that we kind of vaguely touched on this with Hawkeye, but like in the recent, one of the recent Kate Bishop Hawkeye runs, she moves to LA. And I think that there's something with them making Moira her aunt in the show I think that the version that we get of whatever the next iteration of the Avengers is might be a kind of melding of young Avengers with West Coast Avengers and kind of have them based out in California for a change of pace, change of tone. You can kind of draw from some of that wackier West Coast Avengers stuff because throughout history, they've just had some really cool, weird arcs. The West Coast Avengers is so integral to the stuff we saw in WandaVision, which I know now feels like it was like a million years ago, but that established the tone for these shows. And so much of that came out of that. And a lot of the exploration of what we still have to to look at with Wanda and and with the White Vision and, and, and where he stands now is that all is derived from West Coast Avengers. So I think that's like a really big touch point. And my biggest question is like, are they not establishing a brand new team of Avengers, new Avengers, young Avengers, West Coast Avengers, uncanny Avengers, like whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it Savage Avengers? Savage, yeah, like, you know. Yeah, I would rather they keep that one out. I'm yeah, not keep that one out. <laughs> keep keep that one yeah. in the pocket. But like, is it because their focus right now is like Fantastic Four and the X-Men and then when the X-Men appear, we get some kind of new Avengers team. And then we have, you know, Avengers versus X-Men, which I think is the yeah. big thing like every comic book person yeah. wants. But I wonder, because I feel like every other phase has been so defined by the Avengers team. And yeah. we have all the pieces here for something new. You know, for a long time, it seemed like Captain Marvel would be the Captain America and we would have these different legacy characters, but that hasn't come together in the way that a lot of us expected. So I'm really interested because like you said, you made a really great point where you're like, they're almost doing these team-up movies because they don't have a core team and people love the team-up movies. People love the team. what happens after Doctor Strange? You know, is it a different kind of team? Is it an Illuminati? instead of an Avengers, you know, is it a dark Avengers, which we kind of think that we've been seeing seeded in some of the TV shows. It is an exciting and unpredictable time. (laughs) Yeah, we're really, we're really in uh, some unexplored territory. Uh, It feels like we're flying by the seat of our pants with some of this stuff. Mm -hmm, One mm -hmm. one last thing. Uh, You mentioned it a little bit. There's something not right about this museum, right? Yeah. First of all, Steven's apartment for somebody who works in the gift shop mm-hmm. is that's a minimum fucking, wage job, baby. It's that's a minimum fucking wage palatial. Job. Like it is stacks of books, high ceilings. Like it is friggin' huge. Now you could say that's some of his Mark Spector money or whatever the mercenary, like, okay. But like, does Mark Spector even exist in this reality? Yeah. Also, I, I think you touched on something here because the, the number one, Thing that I think a lot of Moon Knight fans and Moon Knight readers and even casual Moon Knight kind of knower about us were confused about is in the comics, Stephen Grant is the billionaire, He's the millionaire, a movie producer, usually, right? right. Making a latest, movie. Latest, latest the, iteration. Latest iteration is the, iteration he's, he's is the movie, movie producer. But generally, he's the Tony Stark persona. He's right. the Bruce Wayne, right? So people say, oh, well, why would 
this guy be working in a gift shop? So does this mean that the museum is a front for something else? Is this really what Stephen is right. experiencing? That, that I think the apartment is such a good catch that I hadn't really thought about because like owning a house in London is a myth. Renting a house in London is a myth. And yeah. so to have that in the center of London when you work a minimum wage job, with no benefits and and kind of yeah. that is a great little clue that whatever this version of and that would kind of explain away like Donna you know JB who who is the security guard who I'm sure is gonna is gonna play a bigger part and have a kind of sit more serious role these characters are like not nice to Stephen and there doesn't really yeah. seem to be a reason they're not nice to him but they're also but they're familiar they're familiar exactly and not at all surprised with how weird he is yeah. about losing time being forgetful about stuff like they're extremely mean to him but they're also like not put off by how strange he is acting at times yeah and it doesn't seem not like it all. comes from a place of empathy it seems like yeah. it comes from like oh we expect it so i i really think there might be something interesting to the idea especially if you're talking about this bubble kind of universe that you were talking about the pocket universe you know i think there's something very interesting to the idea that the museum is a, a fragmented prison. part yeah, of something created something, to, something yeah. created to distract him you know maybe something even created by a different version of Stephen to, you know, what's the, oh, you just wanted to have a normal life. You don't want the drama. You don't want the, to, okay, go and work in a museum where your passions are. And I do think something else that's like in, interesting to me on, on a rewatch, right? There are hints in this first episode of Stephen's like deep, deep intelligence and passions yeah. and, and the things that he knows a lot about. And that kind of contradicts the general representation, which is kind of, he's like a bumbling kind yeah. of silly guy and I think that is also very interesting when we're thinking about like what is this version that we're seeing and what is really going on behind the kind of curtain it's uh, fascinating interesting first episode a little bit of a mess but with some really intriguing things and I can't wait to talk about how this could possibly connect uh, to the larger MCU more with you Rosie up next nerd out <laughs> In today's Nerd Out, where you tell us what you love and why, Jed pitches us on the 2019 fantasy epic bestseller that is excellent, really, really good, Black Leopard, Red Wolf by Marlon James. It is an excellent book. Pick it up. Hello, Jason. It's me, Jed Segovia. Shout out to my fellow Filipino-American host of X-Ray Vision, and I am urging you to pick up Marlon James's brutal and beautiful fantasy epic novel, Black Leopard, Red Wolf. And I came across this because I love fantasy. I read The Silmarillion in college, and I couldn't even get through the first Lord of the Rings novel. And I just wanted to find novels that were just away from the traditional Western, you know, Eurocentric settings of castles, knights, dragons, the stuff that's become Hollywood IP. And I came across Black Leopard, Red Wolf, written by Marlon James. And this story, it's a beautiful epic set in a very vivid and brutal version of Africa, inspired by African myth and history. James has jokingly referred to this story as an African Game of Thrones. But while it has all the hallmarks of that kind of story, warring kingdoms, palace intrigue, monsters, magic fascinating characters. It's inspired by a culture that, in my experience, has rarely appeared in acclaimed stateside novels. And this book is the first book of a planned trilogy called the Dark Star Trilogy. And this first book centers on Tracker, a bounty hunter with a magic nose capable of tracking anything and anyone, which he uses to track down missing women, flandering husbands, or any lost person in all of these myriad kingdoms across this magical land. And his sordid life of tracking eventually leads him to encounter what would become a companion and frenemy, Leopard, a shape-shifting Leopard and Master Archer. And the core of the story is a quest that Tracker and Leopard are brought into by a motley crew of priestesses, giants, mercenaries and witches to rescue a kidnapped child from a 
band of vampires and monsters going around tearing up the land, killing entire families. And it's just such a beautiful and such a vividly written novel. It's like reading an R-rated Final Fantasy story set in Africa. The violence is visceral and the magic is fairy tale-like, but not in that sanitized Disney sense, but in the classic Grim Brothers sense of grotesque and body horror. The characters are flawed, but they're absolutely magnetic to read. And what I love is that the characters aren't even like cisgender. Tracker is queer, the leopard is queer, and there are full-on sex scenes between multiple members of the same gender. It's treated as a matter of fact and very refreshing to read in a novel of this genre. And it's a perfect time to get into it because the second book had come out in February and the narrative picks up from where the first book ends. And it's just really exciting because this second book, the point of view is then written from the point of view of another character in the first book, Black Leopard and Red Wolf. So the thing is, the film rights to Black Leopard and Red Wolf have already been bought by Michael B. Jordan, Killmonger himself. I really urge you to check out this book. It's a great read. We will definitely be seeing an adaptation soon in the big screen or in any of these big streaming services. Peace out and enjoy. Thanks, Jed, for submitting. If you want to be featured, send your nerd out pitch to xrayacrooked.com. Instructions are in the show notes. Up next, the end game. Rosie, we are in the end game now, and today we are pondering the question, if you could have the powers of any mythical god, who would it be? This is interesting. This is a fascinating one. Um, Rosie, do you want to go first? This is a tough one. I'm going to go for comfort over anything else. If I was going to become a Greek god and get any, or, or any kind of mythological god and get any power, I would go uh, for ambrosia. I would oh, take the god it. of food. I'm like, I want abundance. I want to feed people delicious stuff. I want my friends to eat the food and feel so nourished. I want to never be hungry. I make everyone food so they're never hungry. I don't know if that's how our powers work, but that's how I'm taking it. I just love, I love it. I love a food. I love the relevance of food in mythology. You know, I think a lot of about like the myths of like Persephone and stuff. Those were the stories I always remembered. So I kind of like. The idea is food is this nourishing thing on like a metaphorical level and a physical level. And I love eating. So that's what my one would well, be. Well, <laughs> then if you're going to do that, then I'm going to pick, I'm, I have to pick Bacchus, the god yes! of wine and parties, so that we what could just team? like throw a crazy, crazy feast. Bacchus, uh, you know, you know him, uh, alias Liber, uh, where we get the word libations. Uh, always pictured as, uh, in conjunction with like vines and vines of grapes, always holding a drinking cup with like a crown of grapes and stuff. Uh, bacchanalia is, is a word for just kind of like an ecstatic party. Uh, I, I, what, what are Bacchus's powers? Just kind of like uh, physical pleasure and partying. Yeah, wine and, and facility, baby. Listen, Living it love up. Love it. And together, I think, what an incredible pair. <laughs> Uh, that's it for the end game. Who would you pick? What power would you pick of a mythological, of an ancient god or creature? Uh, hit us at hashtag XRV Endgame to give us your pick. Big thank you to Rosie Knight for joining us on X-Ray Vision. Rosie, plug everything. Plug everything you got. Yeah, come. Uh, I'm at Instagram, Rosie Marks, M-A-R-X. Uh, same on Letterboxd, where I've actually been doing a really good job of putting every movie that I watch. I don't review many of them, but I log them and you can laugh at all my bad choices or watch <laughs> along to all these great bad movies with me. Uh, if you like Easter eggs and want to dig more into that, there's a big Easter egg piece up at Nerdist for this episode of Moon Knight. There will be weekly. That is what I do. There is also a Latveria piece. There is also a piece about mine and Jason's Nexus being theory. There is all kinds of fun stuff there. I have a Godzilla comic coming out. You cannot pre-order it yet, but you can let your comic shop know that you think it looks really cool and uh, hopefully they will pre-order it. If you live in the LA area, tell your comic shop to hit me up. We will be doing cool signings. I can't announce any right now, but I will announce them when they are closer. And yeah, and then obviously listen to us on yes. X-Ray Vision. <laughs> 
Check out our videos on the Uncultured YouTube channel. Check the next episode on April 8th, where we will be diving into the sci-fi, multiversal, action, film, everything, everywhere, all at once. So see that if you have a chance to see it or if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, we'll surely be discussing more Moon Knight and other episodes of that and, and probably Halo as well. And again, send your nerd out submissions to x-ray at crooked.com. Don't forget to hit us with the five-star ratings. We love those. X-Ray Vision is a crooked media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Delon Villanueva and Matt DeGroote provide video production and support. And Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you to Brian Vasquez for our theme music. Goodbye. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.